doing Bitcoin mining on one landfill, one small landfill in a year, is equivalent to planting 20 million trees and letting them grow for 10 years. That's how significant it is. Welcome back to Beyond the Price, a podcast from CoinPost that goes beyond the flashing numbers to explore how Bitcoin fits into the global economy and how real people and real companies are actually using it, especially in Asia, since I'm based in Japan. This is a little different than the schedule I outlined last week, but I couldn't be more excited to bring you today's interview. For a lot of people, the first thing, or even the only thing, they think of when they hear Bitcoin is that it's bad for the environment. My guest Daniel Batten started in that camp. In fact, he's been an investor in climate tech for a number of years now. But after looking into the facts, his conclusion was that Bitcoin is not only less harmful than it's often painted to be, but it's actually crucial to our fight against climate change and our achieving a transition to renewable energy. We talk about how Bitcoin miners are a unique type of electricity customer that actually makes it easier to build out renewable energy sources, how they're already helping stabilize the power grid in places like Texas, and then we get into what Daniel's most excited about, using Bitcoin mining to reduce methane emissions. We even talk about Japan a bit at the end, so give it a listen and let me know what you think. I hope you enjoy. I'm here with Daniel Batten, climate activist and uh, climate tech investor. Daniel, thanks for joining me. Hey, no worries. Great to be here. Uh, I'm actually really excited to have you on because uh, I've, I've been uh, kind of following your work for a while. And uh, as, as I reached out to you maybe six months ago, you wrote a piece that was just, in my mind, the perfect uh, article about Bitcoin. It not only explained kind of what Bitcoin is, but uh, addressed the question that that so many people have, which is, is, is Bitcoin really bad for the environment? Um, on your website, that's the, that's the first article, but I would be shocked if that, that was the first thing you ever wrote about Bitcoin. So uh, could you tell us, uh, well, what you were doing before Bitcoin and then, and then how you came into Bitcoin? Before Bitcoin, so I worked in technology companies. So I was part of three different companies, either as a founder or as an early employee. And you learn pretty fast you don't achieve anything without a great team. And I was fortunate enough to be part of three great teams. And we had three exits. And then from there, I moved into investing and tech investing. I've done that for about 20 years. And more recently, been doing climate tech investing since that's married to my environmental values. And also, we live in an age of consequences. So I wanted to be investing in things which had a big impact so that seemed a natural thing to do and then someone suggested somewhere along the line that I should look at this thing called Bitcoin as a climate tech investor and and I said why and they said well it's actually good for the environment I said that's not what I've heard and I was persuaded to do due diligence on it which is what you do as an investor and I did so I put my preconceptions to one side and I talked to people outside my immediate community. Uh, so that involved talking to solar engineers, battery engineers, people who knew about methane mitigation, Bitcoin mining companies themselves, energy experts, uh, even grid operators, just doing a lot of research about it to get familiar with the subject, other environmentalists, and started to form a viewpoint, which was actually very different to some of my preconceptions. And through that period of really doing a number of weeks, I would say, doing very little else other than 
researching Bitcoin, primarily in terms of its environmental impact. Was it positive? Was it negative? I didn't know anything about it in terms of its potential to be sound money. I, I didn't enter into that angle. It was purely in terms of what's its environmental impact. Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it somewhere in the middle? Is it a mixture? And the conclusion I came out with was that my original stance was uh, badly wrong. And that, in fact, on balance, it was one of the best climate tech propositions that I'd ever seen, if not the best in terms of its potential. That's quite a that's quite a claim. And I think, like you say, that's one that will be pretty counterintuitive to uh, to a lot of listeners. It's counterintuitive for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I and I get it as well. Look, there are some things in life that are how things look at first impressions is how they are uh, such as you look at a person you form a first impression you find out later you don't know why you're right but you are right about them either good or bad but then there, there are some other things in life which act in the exact opposite way where your first impression is completely incorrect and you can only discover the truth through deeper inquiry so for example the curvature of the earth to people we, we know that now but back in the day people looking at the Earth would assume that it's flat. Or heliocentricity, the idea that the Earth revolves around the sun, that's counterintuitive. Our senses tell us, no, 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 the sun revolves around the Earth. We can see in the east, uh, the sun rises and it kind of goes in this hemispherical pattern and it, and it sets in the west. So clearly the sun is going around the Earth. But the counterintuitive truth that, no, the Earth is both going around the sun as it's revolving around its axis, thereby creating the illusion of the sun going around the Earth, that's counterintuitive, and that requires deeper inquiry. So Bitcoin is one of those things where what seems apparent at first glance, which is what I thought, which is this is bad for the environment because it uses lots of energy, because uh, it creates emissions. When we introspect more deeply we find out that actually that apparent truth is not the real story and but you can only just like the curvature of the earth or heliocentricity you can only discover that through deeper inquiry and i just f feel fortunate that i gave myself that time to do the research to go deep into it and not to rely on first impressions so let's jump into that then how did you go from um Bitcoin is bad for the environment or Bitcoin uses a lot of energy to Bitcoin is actually not just like neutral or positive, yeah. but perhaps even crucial for our uh, yeah. uh, environmental future. So the first thing is Bitcoin does use a lot of energy. There is no question about that. No question whatsoever. Where I went to from there was I... I started to research deeply what environmentalists were saying about energy usage and about consumption. And so the first thing I realized was there's a guy called Saul Griffiths, very prominent environmentalist, who's writ written this book called Electrify Everything and very widely respected in the industry. And what he says is that the consensus of most climate scientists and environmentalists and people who know about grids is to enable the renewable transition, we actually need to increase energy usage. However, and there's an important caveat, it has to be the right sort of energy. So it has to be energy which is uh, flexible customers and ones that have the ability to use sustainable energy sources. Whereas people who are inflexible users, uh, who tend to just have to use the grid or prefer 
fossil fuel, we obviously want less of them. So what happens is if you don't actually have an increase in the so it's supply and demand dynamics, you look at an electrical grid. How are you going to transition it when you have fossil fuel out there, when you want to bring a whole lot more renewables onto the grid? Well, you need to have more demand. More demand means more energy usage from flexible users. So the first thing I learned was that from an environmental point of view, it wasn't so much energy usage we should be looking at, but it's the emissions uh, that is of primary importance. So then I, I changed my focus from energy into let's look at emissions. And what I could see was that back in 2021, yeah, Bitcoin was using quite a lot of fossil fuel back at the time. Uh, no question about that. And one of the big reasons was that most of the Bitcoin mining in the world was done in China. And people say, oh, that's great because there's a lot of hydro. Well, yeah, there's a lot of hydro, but there was also a lot of coal. And it wasn't a 50-50 split. They could only use hydro during the wet season. And the wet season was less than half a year. It was maybe four months, five months top. The other seven to eight months it was using coal, and coal is one of the most emission-intense forms of um, electrical-powered energy you can possibly use. And so what happened was when Bitcoin mining was banned from China, some of it migrated to Kazakhstan, some of it migrated to America and some other places as well. But then Kazakhstan got decimated as well, and there were effective bans on using Bitcoin there or unfriendly government policy. So the people who migrated to Kazakhstan stopped going to Kazakhstan. They went to the States and other places. And you started to see over this period of time this real transition where Bitcoin went from using only 38% sustainable energy right up to using today 53% sustainable energy. Uh, and so that was the second thing that I found out. And then I compared that to other users of electricity and what i found out that was that compared to other global industries bitcoin was actually using more sustainably sourced electricity than the banking sector uh, than gold than agriculture than zinc recycling than the steel industry than any other industry you could possibly name it was using about six percent more sustainable energy every single year and it had reached a point where it was now the number one user of sustainable energy. And one of the big reasons for that was it was able to use off-grid energy. So the, the other thing I found out was that Bitcoin has this mining has this remarkable property where it doesn't care where you set up a business. Now, think of a, a bank. You care about where you set up a business. It's important. You need to be next to some uh, hub of activity. And Bitcoin mining, it's the opposite. So you can locate Bitcoin mining units, actually co-locate them next to a renewable operator on site. So you've got a wind farm. You can put it on that wind farm. You've got a solar farm. You can put it on that solar farm. That's incredibly unique to Bitcoin. And what that means is a couple of things. Firstly, it means that you don't have to transmit that energy across a grid. Well, that's good because sometimes the grids are aging and they can't take that. They don't have the bandwidth, just like a highway will only take a certain amount of traffic. Grids can only take a certain amount of electrons before they reach capacity. So it relieves that capacity issue. Second thing it means is that when those solar and wind operators are spilling their power into the ground because people don't need that energy because it's the middle of the night when the wind's blowing sometimes and it's the middle of the day when the sun's shining and people don't need the 
all of that energy in the middle of the day, that Bitcoin mining rigs can take that energy that no one else is using, which gives those solar and wind operators a customer that they wouldn't otherwise had. It establishes a base price for their electricity and it makes them more profitable and therefore allows them to expand their renewable operations. And there were many other benefits that I discovered, but those were the first ones. And that started to get me intrigued. So at this point, I'm thinking, yes, there's definitely some positives about Bitcoin. At that point, I still wasn't convinced that it was good on net balance. But th those are the things that started to um, soften my initial stance on Bitcoin and see that it could have some positives. Yeah, that's uh, uh, what you mentioned about uh, um, power being uh, transmitted, I think. Is, a, is an important point. Uh, definitely for me, it was something I'd never thought about before really looking into this. I just assumed that electricity, you, you produce it in one place, you can send it anywhere you like. It was quite a surprise to learn that actually electricity doesn't travel well uh, at all. Yeah, we kind of live in this wireless world and we forget that electricity still requires wires. Maybe one day someone will figure out how to transmit it wirelessly. But until that day, we are in the analog age where we have wires, right? So like my mouse doesn't have a wire. Uh, you know, my headphones don't have a wire. Uh, my Wi-Fi connection doesn't have wires. But electricity has wires. So if you can't physically connect it, you cannot transport that electricity. So the ability to locate on site is tremendously important. And remember, a lot of the renewable energy that's coming onto the grid requires a grid upgrade, uh, this has been one of the issues with renewable energy. You've got huge amounts of stranded renewable energy, like in West Texas and the Northern Territory of Australia and the South of Spain, a number of places in the world, because what happened was there was a lot of government subsidies for renewable operation, but the government hadn't considered, well, what about the grid's ability to take this energy? And so you had all this electrical um, infrastructure put into um, renewable development, but the grids weren't able to take it. So again, when you have Bitcoin mining companies, they can not only be an off-taker for that energy, which means you can build more renewable energy in the right place. The other thing that it means is because you get these renewable operators profitable and they make them to go in concerns, their chances of getting interconnected to the grid go up, not down, because then you go to get financed um, to extend your operation or to to pay for part of the fees of getting grid interconnected because the grid doesn't necessarily pay at all, you're much more likely to get financing if you've got a customer than if you don't. And so these Bitcoin mining operations, what I found talking to these solar operators and these wind operators, uh, one wind operator said, I cannot believe that there is such a perfect customer for my wind energy. That, that's what a wind operator said. It, it took him a little while to wrap his head around what Bitcoin mining was, but once he wrapped his head around it, he said, I cannot believe there is such a perfect customer for wind energy. If I had designed a customer, I would have designed it like this. I never thought one would exist. Who can locate anywhere? They need my wind at inconvenient times a day. They can buy curtailed energy. And they're happy to not use it when someone else needs it. Because it's not going to be take their business down. It just means they get fewer Bitcoin at that time. Uh, so that ability to be on-site and to not care about what time of day you're using electricity, unlike you or I, who only use it for fixed hours and then we use less of it, um, that's extremely unique. So the more you look into it, the more you start to discover this is actually solving more problems than it's creating. But again, it takes research to get to that point. And 
I can completely understand why a lot of people come to the premature conclusion, as I did, <laughs> that it's bad for the environment because we don't always have the patience for that research. Or like me, if you hear it, we're so used to hearing greenwash that sometimes we just assume that it's greenwash. So that's what we call a false positive. Uh, but as I said, this was coming to people who had no vested interest in liking Bitcoin. This was coming from non-Bitcoin miners as well. This is coming from solar operators, uh, battery experts, grid experts, number of renewable operators. The grid operators themselves were saying, this is solving problems for us. So are you seeing uh, adoption by um, companies like that where they, they're not interested in Bitcoin per se, um, they're not like trying to shoehorn it into their business, they, they actually have a legitimate use for it? Increasingly, absolutely. Yeah, I've seen a number of renewable operators who, who really couldn't care less about Bitcoin and about the story of sound money, uh, but for them it just solves the problem. For them it's an off-taker for their energy. It's a customer. It helps to, and for grid operators, same thing. Uh, th there's a wonderful story about Brad Jones, who was the former interim CEO of ERCOT, that's the Energy Reliable Reliability Council of Texas. And he was brought on after the winter storm URI and the grid blackout to help to stabilize the grid, to weatherize some of the equipment that failed, uh, but also to think of some smart ways to prevent blackouts from happening in the future. And he did a number of innovations, including, um, as I said, weatherization of a lot of the old generation equipment that needed it. it was out of date, some updating of the grid. But he also looked at this issue of demand response. And what that means is that what he found was as climate change kicked in, they were, uh, Texas was getting more and more extreme weather events. That meant extreme cold and extreme heat. Because of extreme cold and extreme heat, they both have the same result, which is people need more power either for more air conditioning or more heating. And so because they needed more power, um, that was what was getting these the grid to the, to the brink. And there wasn't enough power at certain times. And so their only solution was to curtail usage. And there was a phone call that Brad Jones was on with a number of Bitcoin mining companies when he said to them, look, I'm not into Bitcoin, I'm risk averse. But I love what Bitcoin does in terms of helping to stabilize the grid. He said, I have really observed how Bitcoin does two things. Number one, it brings renewable energy onto the grid that otherwise would not have been economical. It provides a first buyer and proliferates renewables on the grid. And then number two, once they're on the grid, it helps to counterbalance their intermittency. It helps to stabilize the grid. So you've got to remember, this is not coming from a, a person who even holds any Bitcoin. He has no vested interest. He's interested in it purely as a way to help him stabilize the grid, number one, and to help him get more renewable energy onto the grid. And in his words, this is coming from the grid operator himself, was that he'd never seen a, a means to do it which was as successful as Bitcoin mining. So when someone like that, with the credibility he has, the task he has, and the insights he has, the knowledge of grids he has, the number of solutions he's tried to counterbalance the intermittency of renewable energy, comes up with a statement like that, um, then I pay attention. And what we're finding is that people like that who understand grids, the experts, 
are not the people who sit in, in academic institutes and, and who have a title called energy expert, but actually have never operated a grid and have never had to load balance it. But the people who are actually tasked day in, day out with doing this, they're the ones who are coming out and saying, we have tried Bitcoin mining. We have tried other forms of introducing flexible customers. And we have found that Bitcoin is by far and away the best. On the topic of, uh, of different ways to try to accomplish this, because it sounds like, I mean, there is a big need there. Uh, both for a, uh, an energy consumer that can um, uh, make it profitable to develop more renewable energy sources, and then also an energy consumer that, that can use energy when um, people are not using it so that, it's, so that it remains profitable to, to have those uh, renewable energy sources. But uh, I, I can imagine, or I have heard a lot of people ask, um, well, isn't Bitcoin mining still taking energy away from other more legitimate uses. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that um, competition yeah. and then also what uh, um, what other ways there might be? You, you talked about flexible uh, consumers. What, what have been other flexible consumers up until now? So in terms of does it take energy away from other users, uh, this is a complete misconception. And I can understand why people would think that uh, because what often happens when people don't understand technologies well is two things. Uh, number one, as humans, we tend to assume the worst uh, when we don't understand a new technology. Same thing happened with the internet. There were a lot of articles with the internet about how it's going to proliferate coal stations and all the rest of it. And what we found is that actually none of that was true. We just had a new technology. We, we were a little bit scared by it, or well, some people were, and the other thing that happens is, of course, whenever you have a disruptive technology, is that the people who get disrupted, they're not just going to, you know, lie down and say, hey, come a new technology. Uh, so when the internet came in, the telecommunication companies were the ones who were the busiest raiding against the internet and saying how terrible it was because they were losing their uh, telecommunication revenue to voice over IP, for example. Uh, the magazine industry started to attack it. They said it wasn't as good as the internet because people were reading these things called e-zines rather than magazines. So th there was a lot of uh, these powerful institutions who would attack the new disruptor. So we see that happen with Bitcoin as well. So some of it's misunderstanding and some of it patently is also people stoking the fires of misunderstanding actively because it's, they want people to misunderstand it and they want people to malign it. And I see a lot of evidence for that. Now, when you peel back the vested interests and actually look at what's going on, I'll, I'll explain it to you in really simple economic terms. In Bitcoin mining, the now, this is not because Bitcoin miners are particularly environmentally minded. They're no more environmentally minded than any other industry out there. So it's not because they're particularly virtuous or they're, they're um, particularly philanthropic or they're, they're all green. Um, they're not the opposite either. They're just kind of the same as any other industry. But it just so happens coincidentally that the economic incentives align such that they prefer renewable energy and they prefer energy that other people don't want at the times other people don't want it. And, and that's true because with Bitcoin miners and unique to Bitcoin mining, 80% of your operating costs is electricity. There has never and being another industry in the world who has such a high percentage of the operating cost being electricity. Traditional data centers might be 30% of your lucky. When such a high cost of operating is electricity, it creates some very unique behaviors. 
one of the new unique behaviors is that you will create a lot of effort to chase cheap electricity. And cheap electricity today, happily, is chiefly renewable. If most of the Bitcoin mining had been going on 15 years ago, then we'd have the opposite problem. Um, then fossil fuel was more expensive and then Bitcoin mining would be creating a lot of issues. Absolutely, it'd be incentivizing more fossil fuel plants to come online. Uh, in fact, the opposite is happening. There are, there are 41 operations, Bitcoin mining operations, that are either entirely or predominantly renewably powered. That's not true of any other industry that you have such a high proportion. Secondly, the reports of Bitcoin mining op opening up fossil fuel plants, um, I've done the research on this, they're actually not true. Um, there was one in Lake Seneca that was said, okay, they brought a gas plant online. What actually happened was there was a company went in there, brought a gas plant online, simply so they could sell that gas back to the grid. After three years of doing that, they then decided that they wanted to do a portion of that in Bitcoin mining, um, so that they could do Bitcoin mining when they got a low price for electricity, and they could sell it to the grid when they got a high price of electricity. But the, the plant was not brought online to do Bitcoin mining. There has never been a case of a large fossil fuel plant coming online specifically to do Bitcoin mining that had been mothballed. So, so that's one myth that's been perpetuated. The second myth that's been perpetuating, perpetuated is, and particularly by the New York Times, um, who did an article which was, uh, frankly, I would say, how would I put this politely? I don't think it was some particularly great journalism. I think if they had been serious about doing investigative research, they would have talked to Bitcoin miners, they would have talked to real energy experts, and they would have talked to the grid operators, and they would have found a very different story. Because 80% of your electrical costs, of your operational costs are electricity, what happens when demand goes up to electricity prices? Now, I don't mean the electricity that you and I are using, which is roughly the same price all the time. If you're an industrial or a wholesale customer for electricity, your electricity prices go up and down depending on demand. So when everyone wants electricity, prices go through the roof. Now, if you're a Bitcoin mining company and 80% of your operational costs are electricity, you have an inbuilt incentive not to be using electricity when everyone else is using it because it's too expensive. I have talked to Bitcoin mining companies and they have algorithms which will automatically switch off once Bitcoin mining is no longer profitable. And that's the point when other people are wanting energy. So what that means is that Bitcoin mining, again, this is not because they're philanthropic, this because the economic incentives just happen to align. It is naturally a non-rival user of electricity. So that's really important. So yes, Bitcoin miners use a lot of energy. They're using that energy when other people are not wanting it. And when people do want it, they switch off so that it's available. Um, so it's a perfect synergistic customer to counterbalance the intermittency of renewable energy without taking away energy from other industries that need it. Now, the, the second point uh, what was the second thing you said? There was, a, there was another thing you wanted uh, me to answer. Oh, you mentioned uh, um, that uh, energy operators had used or tr perhaps tried other um, types of flexible. Oh, yes, other, other types of flexible load. Yeah. So, so yes, they have and they do. So this thing called demand response has been around for a long time. So 
what that means is when you have peak demand, like a lot of people all switch on their heaters at the same time, or they all switch on their aircon at the same time, you've got two options. <laughs> Either you increase the supply of electricity or you decrease the demand. Well, you do have a third option, that's you have blackouts, but that's not really an option. So if you want to keep the grid online, you have to either increase the supply of electricity or you have to decrease the demand. Now, how can you increase the supply of electricity? You can't suddenly ask the sun to shine more. You can't suddenly ask the wind to blow more. So those options are gone. So typically, increasing demand means fossil fuel. So that's coal or that's going to be gas. And of them, the most flexible is gas. So you have these things called gas pica plants, which are hugely expensive. They cost billions of dollars on a grid such as ERCOT, and they have to idle all the time throughout the year, releasing fossil fuels just for those few hours when they needed to satisfy peak demand because otherwise the grid reaches blackout because you don't have enough supply of electricity. Which is kind of ironic because what it means is you bring more renewable energy online, more intermittent renewable energy, you need more gas peaker plants just for those times where there's a supply-demand mismatch. So, so that's not great for the whole renewable transition story. So the other strategy that grid operators use is they say, well, rather than dialing up our supply of electricity, let's dial down the demand for it. So they have these particular programs where they have users who agree that when they get the call, they have to switch off. And they're compensated, they're paid money for the participation because they're providing a service back to the grid. They're helping to keep the grid stable. Now, the predominant options in the past for grid operators have been these users who use also use a lot of electricity. So the features have, you have to use a lot of electricity, otherwise it's not gonna have a big impact. And you have to be able to switch off without anything catastrophic happening. And there's only really been a couple of options, steel mills and aluminum smelters. So they've, they've been two of the big demand response customers. Now, whilst both of them are heavy users of electricity and whilst they can shut off, they have three pretty, pretty big problems. The first problem is you can't shut off a steel mill straight away. You've got to go through a whole lot of checks and balances before you start to wind it down. That takes time. Well, if demand's peaking, the grid operator doesn't have a lot of time. The second problem is you switch off a steel mill and, and suddenly it's, it's either on or it's off. So you might have the opposite problem where you've now lost a whole lot of power and now you've got an imbalance in the other way where you don't have enough energy being used for the supply. So now you've got an imbalance in the other direction. So it's not precisely calibrable. That's the second issue. And the third issue is it only buys you about four hours because after about four hours, steel starts to harden. Industrial processes start to break. It becomes expensive. So if you are in an ice storm in Texas and it's lasting more than four hours, uh, that's not enough. You would still have to have that fossil fuel gas peaker plant as backup. Now, compare and contrast that to Bitcoin mining. Now, Bitcoin mining also high user of electricity. Tick also has the ability to switch off, tick. Now let's look at those other three features. Firstly, it doesn't take half an hour, it takes half a minute to be able to switch off. It can do it almost instantaneously. That's a huge advantage to a grid operator. Secondly, because these Bitcoin mining rigs are modularized, you have a whole lot of, it's not one big piece of machinery, it's a whole lot of small pieces of machinery. 
you can shut off exactly the amount of mining rigs to get it to the exact level of drop in electricity consumption that the grid operator wants. That helps them tremendously. So it's immediate and it's precisely calibrable. I have to find a new word to say other than that one. <laughs> and the third thing is that it has longevity. So you can shut it off for more than four hours. There's no processes that break. You can shut it off for 40 hours. You can shut it off for four days. You can shut it off for a week. As long as that extreme weather event is lasting or as long as that peak load is there. So it gives these grid operators tremendous flexibility that they've never had. And that is helping to keep the grid stable. And what we're seeing, not only in the news media, but a number of academic reports are now starting to come up, which is starting to tell the story now. They're starting to catch up and they're telling the story about how these Bitcoin mining companies have brought stability to the grid. Yeah, where do you think we're at now in terms of the narrative? I saw, uh, I think you put out a tweet a few days ago saying that uh, you think um, the environmental criticism around Bitcoin has kind of reached its peak and we're starting to see um, more positive news stories. Um, do you expect that to continue? Um, and what do you think the catalyst was for that? Yes, I think the tide has definitely turned, and there's, there's three reasons for that. Number one, this year we've actually seen more in the mainstream media, more positive articles about Bitcoin and the environment than negative. Now, that doesn't mean they're all positive. There are still absolutely some very high-profile ones, which have been negative as well. But the balance has been, there's been more positive ones than negative, so that's a shift. Second thing is we've had a major Big Four accountancy firm KPMG, who's gone through a very thorough ESG review of Bitcoin and has given it a thumbs up for all three, for the environment, for the social good, and for the governance. Um, so that's an independent audit. And these things do not go past ESG teams lightly. So that, that's a huge thumbs up. First time that's happened. The third thing that's happened is we've had a an independently peer-reviewed academic study which has come out which has started to look not at saying Bitcoin is less damaging to the environment than we thought but has actually said the opposite they've said no Bitcoin is actually net positive to the environment and balance it does have some like all technologies it has some negative environmental externalities there's no question about that and it doesn't mean that all Bitcoin miners are behaving as good agents not at all. But what it says is, very objectively, is that on balance, it is performing a net benefit to the environment. So that was a first. And then we've also had the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance, who's revised their energy model downwards, and said, no, actually Bitcoin is not using as much energy as we thought. We had some assumptions which turned out to be untrue. But what they also said is that our emissions calculations are also likely to be overstated because we have neglected to look at off-grid mining and we have neglected to look at the role Bitcoin has in something called methane mitigation. And when we factor these things in, that will bring, we can expect this to bring down our emissions calculations significantly. So one after the other, there have been people who have been looking at Bitcoin a second time I would say looking at it more deeply, just as I did, 
starting to put those initial misapprehensions to one place and starting to consult with the people who are best positioned to give answers to these questions, the people I mentioned before. And as a result, we've started to see the narrative shift. I would say the tide has actually turned now. So I, I called that about a month ago. I said the tide has actually turned in terms of the the weight of evidence, but also the, the mainstream narrative towards it. Now, does this mean that we won't see more attacks? Of course not. We'll continue to see more attacks. We'll continue to see more articles which are only focusing on the negative environmental externalities. And those attacks will continue to use data, which is probably about two years out of date. In terms of where it's heading from now, I would say that, that it only gets better because everything I've mentioned to this point is not actually the thing that I'm most excited about as a climate tech investor in Bitcoin. The thing that I'm way more excited about, even than the role it plays on the grid, is the role that it plays in measurably reducing emissions by using vented methane as a power source. And, and for me, that was the thing... That, I, that really got me excited. Yeah, you mentioned methane mitigation. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that and what you're, what you're most excited about. Oh, I'm happy you asked. So the amazing thing about methane is that it's 84 times as warming as carbon dioxide over a 24-year period. It's rising at a parabolic rate, and yet very little has been done about curbing it even though the United Nations has said that it's our strongest lever to reduce climate change in the next 25 years. And when I did some research about what our third climate tech fund was going to be, we looked at the issue of methane and we started to ask the question, well, where's it coming from? And it comes from three main sources. So it comes from agriculture, comes from oil, gas and coal extraction, as a byproduct, and it also comes from landfills. And last year, NASA did some aerial satellite emissions measurements of the air that came out of landfills or just above the landfills. And they found that landfills were emitting between two and three times more methane than anyone thought. And then I looked at the question, well, what's the growth rate of landfills? And what's the growth rate of agriculture? And I found that actually landfill methane is growing at twice the rate of agriculture emissions. You put those two things together and landfills by 2032 will be our number one source of human caused methane. And I thought, well, if that's the case, surely someone's doing something about that. And to some extent they are. So what happens is methane gets produced by landfills because you have organic matter that goes into them and it gets compressed without the presence of air and when things decay anaerobically they produce methane and so that methane currently is a couple of things will happen well three things chiefly number one they'll flare it and that means they'll just burn it second thing is they will try to monetize it by selling the electricity to the grid so what happens is you purify that methane you send it to a generator, that generator converts the electricity, uh, the methane rather, into electricity using a combustion engine, and then the electricity is sold back to the grid. Uh, that's a wonderful solution because you're turning pollution into an asset, and at the same time, whilst they are producing some carbon dioxide, remember that's only one eighty-fourth as 
heating as methane is over a 20-year period. So on net balance, it's, a, it's, it's the best solution possible. Um, and this is something that's been around for a long time. The problem has been, what do you do when you cannot sell that power back to the grid? Because the grid may be aging, you may need a major substation upgrade, which is going to cost tens of millions of dollars, or there may be some regulatory issues, which means you cannot sell that power back to the grid, such as in Mexico. Well, in those cases, what you need is an on-site user. And you can see the problem here. There's not a lot of people who want to set up business on a landfill for some strange reason. <laughs> and, and even if they did, why would you want to spend all that money on generators and gas collection equipment simply to chase cheap electricity? And here, once again, that curious anomaly of Bitcoin becomes a real asset. Because Bitcoin miners unique in the world, have 80% of their operational budget coming from electricity, they will chase it. They will pay for that gas capture and collection system. They will pay for the generators. They will bear the inconvenience of being in a landfill because they don't care where they locate. They are naturally scavengers of cheap energy. The economic incentives in line, and they will soak that up, and they will locate on-site at a landfill. And that's extraordinary because no one else is prepared to do that. And we're talking about, by 2032, 30% of all our methane emissions, more than 30%, will come from landfills. And Bitcoin mining companies can potentially mitigate up to half of that. Not all of it. Sometimes there'll be other better solutions. But on half of those landfills where they can't sell back to the grid, doesn't make sense to do RNG or any of those other things you can do with methane gas. For those landfills, Bitcoin mining companies who are collecting that gas, purifying it, sending it to a generator, generating electricity, using that electricity on site to do Bitcoin mining, they're going to be responsible for destroying millions upon millions of tons of emissions that otherwise would be going into the atmosphere, causing climate change. So just to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that Bitcoin miners, they will use uh, landfill methane emissions because... Uh, it's a cheap source of electricity, so it's profitable for them. But also in the process, they're going to uh, massively reduce the amount of methane emissions um, going into the atmosphere. Yes, to give you an idea of, of how massive. So an average landfill, let's say a small landfill, 4 megawatts of power you might be able to generate from a small landfill. So those 4 megawatts they're going to be creating gargantuan amounts of, of carbon emissions. So, so to give you an example, it's about half a million tons per year of carbon dioxide equivalent, half a million tons. So we were talking really substantial numbers. Yeah. It's equivalent to, in terms of the carbon benefit, of planting 20 million trees doing Bitcoin mining on one landfill, one small landfill in a year is equivalent to planting 20 million trees and letting them grow for 10 years. That's incredible. That's how significant it is. And the reason it's so significant is because you're taking that methane, remember, which is 84 times more warming over a 20-year period, and you're destroying that methane. Now, some of those landfills, they're already flaring that methane, and sometimes people say, well, you know, the flaring is destroying it anyway. Uh, so two things there. Flaring actually doesn't destroy all the methane. At best, it's good. there was a scientific paper last year in Science Direct that says it destroys 91.9%. So that additional 8.9% of methane 
you might think, well, that doesn't sound like a lot, but remember 8.9 times percent times 84 times global warming factor of that methane, that's, that's a significant amount of emissions you're still reducing. So even if the Bitcoin miners go in there and they say, we're going to stop that flaring and we're going to do electricity production instead, that's more economical, it's profitable, it's not wasteful, it gives money to the landfill owner, it monetizes that asset, and it mitigates more methane at the same time. And when you do it on landfills that weren't flaring, then it has 10 times the benefit. And so we decided, well, let's do that. Let's make that the focus of our third climate tech fund. We'll do something we've never done before. We will only invest in one type of company. That's, that's how much we love this idea. And remember, I've probably looked at over 200 different climate tech ideas and technologies and pitch decks over the last eight to ten years. And this was the, this is the most excited I've ever got about a climate technology because this is the first time I've seen something that make, can make a difference before 2030, which can mitigate not only carbon dioxide but methane, and which can do it using existing technology. In other words, it's not high-risk technology for the future that may or may not work. It's technology that exists today. We've never had that. So all we need to do is we need to use this technology today, and we had to find a way to make it profitable to do it. Uh, because if it's not profitable, then again, it's not going to happen, and that's the reason it hasn't happened. But these Bitcoin mining companies make something that otherwise wouldn't have been profitable into something that can be. Yeah, that's that's really exciting, and uh, I, I like um, I like how you present it, or or I guess just the fact of the matter um, that it's it's a strategy that doesn't rely on people um, being saints acting uh, beyond their their self interest. It, it it's uh, just reliant on economic incentives and leads to a, a better outcome than what we've seen up until now. Um, there was this quote. That I found uh, actually in in the article, um, your your first article that you posted on your website, um, it says, "Imagine a global network of ants that scuttle around, eating up all the crumbs and discarded scraps of food each day. It probably totals up to tens of billions of calories. To critique that food should be used for something else is misguided." I thought that was a uh, a pretty uh, good metaphor for. Uh, for Bitcoin mining, I've, I've also heard it described as like the cockroaches of the energy industry. Well, that's the thing. You've got to remember that, then again, with landfills, they're not taking energy that other people are wanting. If other people wanted that energy, they already would have taken it. And so they have. And the cases where it made sense to sell that power back to the grid, that's already happening. But in the cases where it didn't make economic sense because the grid upgrade cost too much, nothing was happening. And so these are the cases where we should be extremely grateful, actually, that we do have these Bitcoin mining companies because they're going to go and scavenge that energy that no one else was going to take. And unlike the ants analogy, where not eating crumbs doesn't cause anything negative for the environment, not destroying methane causes something terrible for the environment. So not only are they tidying things up, they're actually turning pollution into a source of power. Uh, and for that, I just think we should be extremely grateful. And, you know, I've taken a lot of time to to meet with these Bitcoin miners, to understand what they're doing, to understand their worldview. 
and they're really doing something extraordinary and they have a tough time. Uh, I was talking to one of the CEOs of one of the publicly traded Bitcoin mining companies who just come out of a meeting with a regulator and I said, how often are you having to meet with them? And he says, every week I'm having to meet with regulators. Wow. I'm having to explain to them why we're not destroying the planet, why we're not boiling the ocean. Um, and so you have people who are providing these incredible services to the grid. They're, the grid operators recognize this. They are continually getting maligned and misunderstood uh, by people who haven't taken the time to look actually deep into what they're doing. Usually they haven't even taken the time to talk to a person doing Bitcoin mining, and it shows, uh, but are just judging them from the sidelines. And yet they're doing this this incredible work, and they're engineers. You know, these are not people who are storytellers. They're not, as they do these incredible things. Uh, one Bitcoin mining company said, "Well, look, it's not our business to tell the world how great we are. We just like to solve engineering problems." Uh, and and I respect that, but I'm happy to tell the stories which they are not telling because these are stories that are important that are understood. Because if People like me don't take the time to understand what Bitcoin miners are doing and to tell these stories, then the story will be told by the people who have a vested interest in attacking Bitcoin because it's a disruptive technology that threatens them in some way. And that's always happened. If we look at that historically, the internet was attacked before that, radio was attacked before that, books were attacked, bicycles were attacked, anything disruptive, the automobile was attacked by the people who had a vested interest. So we've seen this time and time again. It's a rite of passage. And then the narrative flips and then suddenly everyone's on board and everyone pretends that they never attacked it in the first place. Uh, some people have long mem memories and they'll remember, uh, but other people will be forgiving. And, and I'll certainly will be forgiving. But in the meantime, I'm really encouraging people, particularly people who are environmentally minded, uh, to take a deeper look. Uh, talk to me, look at the charts that I've kept. Uh, remember that when I came to this, I was not, uh, yes, absolutely, you can tell I'm a Bitcoin proponent now, but I wasn't at the start. I absolutely was not at the start. In fact, I was mildly negative at the start, uh, but I was just fortunate that I had the, the time, the bandwidth, and met with some people outside my own direct sphere of influence who knew more about the subject than me, uh, who were able to, guide me to some non-obvious counterintuitive conclusions. And the thing is that sometimes people say, well, you're a bit of an anomaly. Um, that might have been true a year ago. It's not true today. Uh, there are increasingly strong amount of environmentalists, people who care about social justice, who are coming out on the side of Bitcoin, who have taken a second look. I've talked to many people who see the world very similar to myself, who had an initially negative impression, many ESG teams, and and just shown them some of what I've discovered uh, who have completely changed their minds once they had new information presented to them. So they're not going to get this information necessarily from the mainstream media, uh, but the information is out there, the data is there, and for people who want to take a deeper look, you'll find that it's just an incredible story. And more and more people are starting to come out and say the same thing, both in, as I said, the, the larger accountancy firms, the, the commentators in the ecosystem, the academics, uh, the research houses, and yes, even people in the environmental movement. Yeah, it seems like we live in this age in which uh, no one changes their mind on anything anymore. 
uh, we're expected to have an opinion on everything and to to shout that opinion from the rooftops of social media and then and then we're punished forever uh, wavering uh, or or changing that opinion so it's uh, it's amazing to hear that uh, the people are coming around based on the evidence um, I'm particularly interested you mentioned government uh, regulators I'm, I'm curious what you're seeing um, whether it's the U.S. or, or par other parts of the globe, uh, certainly Asia, if, if you have any insights on, on our region here. But what are you seeing in terms of uh, government uh, understanding of, of Bitcoin mining and uh, favorability towards it? Well, in Japan, from what I understand, there's been no negative regulation against Bitcoin and no negative regulation against Bitcoin mining. So that's positive. That's a step in the right direction. And neither have there been overtures to say, hey, this is dangerous, we should be looking to curtail it, etc., etc., uh, which is also positive. I don't think there's a lot of Bitcoin mining happening in Japan No. currently. Uh, maybe that'll no. be changed. Not many cheap well, sources of energy here. Not many cheap sources of energy. That's prob That'll be the reason. Uh, so if there's no cheap sources of energy, there won't be a lot of Bitcoin mining. It's going to be pretty much that simple. Although they do uh, build on landfills, which they dump into the ocean and then build uh, tower condominiums on top of that. So I, I so that could be a possibility, yeah, because if you have landfills there, now Japan's a little bit like New Zealand in that it's a long, skinny country. So what that means is you're probably going to be close to a grid and there's a lot of people. So if the grid's in good condition, it may be possible to sell that power back to the grid, in which case you should. It tends to be larger countries like the US, like Canada, like Australia, large continents, South America, Central America to some extent, where you're going to have more problems selling that power back to the grid, but who knows? Um, I would say if there's landfills in Japan which cannot sell power back to the grid, that is a natural candidate for doing Bitcoin mining. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's really interesting to hear. And also it's a good climate for it. Because uh, it's in that area where it rains, it's, it gets a bit humid. And that's not so good for Bitcoin mining, but it's it creates a lot of methane gas. And so you're going to have a lot of emissions coming out of those landfills. Yeah, I'll have to look more into that. Um, how about other, other countries around the world, other governments? Uh, what kind of trends are you seeing? So in Europe, uh, not that friendly currently. In the US, it's... Overall, at a national level, a little bit unfriendly, but not as unfriendly as Europe. At a state level, however, there's a very different story. There's been some people such as Dennis Porter, who's do doing some incredible work, going around and educating people at a state-by-state -state level, helping them to pass laws, giving them right to mine. So they're passing favorable laws to Bitcoin miners. Uh, so that's definitely happening. South America, Central America generally has been pretty friendly towards Bitcoin mining. Australia, New Zealand, pretty friendly. Uh, large parts of the world are pretty friendly, in fact. Sometimes you'll hear people say that uh, Bitcoin is called harem in Islam, uh, but there's a more nuanced truth, and that is that most Islamic countries, it's been called halal, and only one third or less has been called harem. That's for Bitcoin, but for other forms of cryptocurrency, it's the other way around. Hmm. Uh, there's actually been Islamic scholars who have tried to answer that question, is it harem or is it halal? And Bitcoin comes up predominantly ha um, halal and other forms of cryptocurrency, harem. So in other words, halal means it's thought of favorably by Islamic law. 
and RM the opposite. So those considerations are going on. Yeah, uh, of course, China, we have the Bitcoin mining ban. Having said that, there's a lot of Bitcoin mining that happens in China. What it means is that you cannot mine using coal plants anymore. That's dangerous. However, if you're using curtailed hydro energy, that is still occurring because there's nothing else they can do with that hydro energy a lot of the time. It would just flow over the outside of the dam during the wet season. And also it's, it's not impairing the central government's ability to meet their emission targets. So there's a lot of hydro uh, Bitcoin mining that's still occurring in China to this day. Okay, so I didn't realize that that ban was more a ban on, on uh, coal-powered mining than... Officially, it's a ban on all Bitcoin mining. Unofficially, there's still a lot of hydro-based mining. There's also mining that occurs on-grid, and this is more under the radar. And the reason that happens is that it's a way where you can transfer one currency into another effectively through the process of Bitcoin mining. Uh, but that's been done on a small scale because otherwise it attracts too much scrutiny. Right. So, uh, not something that I'd recommend. Right, absolutely. Okay, so the, the um, narrative generally um, getting more favorable. Uh, perhaps we won't have, like, uh, what was it last year? Tesla bought Bitcoin but then uh, sold a portion of it ostensibly um, due to its environmental impact, which was kind of strange considering that they should have known uh, everything there was to know when they bought it. Um, In the defense, at the time they said that, uh, the, it was at that time, I think that was just before the China minor ban or the impact of the China man ban hadn't been fathomed. They both happened around about the same time. And at that time, Bitcoin was mostly based on fossil fuels. Of course, so was every other industry in the world. Uh, and some of these other advantages of Bitcoin hadn't come out into the um, mainstream news as much. They hadn't been as well researched, well understood. Um, the grid balancing capability of Bitcoin at that stage was more theoretical, but it hadn't been done to the same extent that it now has. So a lot of those stories hadn't come out. A lot of those use cases were only theoretical. Now we've got actual concrete evidence of them having occurred. Uh, so I, I can understand why Tesla would have made that call at the time. Having said that, the narrative has changed completely. It, it really has. And a lot of the reason that the narrative has changed is people have understood Bitcoin better. The other reason the narrative has changed is that uh, Bitcoin's power sources have changed in the direction of more sustainable energy and that it's proved a lot of its theoretical potential to balance the grid and to do a lot of methane mitigation at scale. It's already happening in three landfill gas powered Bitcoin mining companies and also occurring for more than 12 companies in the oil and gas industry who are stopping flare gas emissions, uh, which again are still mitigating close to 10% of methane and they're stopping them from mitigating almost any methane at all through sending that methane into a generator. So there's already a lot of methane mitigation happening, a lot of grid stabilization happening and, and a big movement that's occurred towards sustainable energy. And that's the other reason the narrative has shifted, is that Bitcoin deserves the narrative to shift because it has shifted in the right direction over this last two years. Yeah, it's it's uh, extremely fascinating. Um, we're I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, uh, so maybe to close, I'm wondering uh, what you're 
excited about going forward? Um, uh, what your some trends that you're you're seeing that you think will become bigger in the future, or even um, uh, areas that uh, still could improve um, that need some work? Where I think it's going to be important is that in terms of needs work, needs improvement, this is the minority of miners. Uh, Bitcoin mining does create a lot of noise pollution, potentially, if you don't take steps to mitigate them. And so what's important is you're either mitigating, sorry, you're mining in an area where people aren't around, but if people are around, it's just important that you're a good citizen and that there are well-tried and true processes to substantially curtail that noise pollution. Most Bitcoin mining companies take them. Occasionally you get someone who doesn't, and that kind of spoils things a little bit for everyone, and that can taint an industry. Unfairly, but still, if you're a resident there, I could understand if suddenly you have to get up on your front porch and you're receiving close to 100 decibels of noise, why you wouldn't like a Bitcoin mining company and why you'd be protesting against them. So, so that's an area which there's some easy solutions to, uh, but that's an area where, again, some of those outliers, not the, not the main, but some of those outliers can take better action. Um, the other area which I think is going to be important is all industries have e-waste, and Bitcoin mining is no exception to that. Um, in terms of e-waste with Bitcoin mining, what's interesting here is that they are being used for longer and longer, the Bitcoin mining rigs. Um, but I would like to see um, some effort being made to say, you know, how are we going to recycle these? You know, how can we make sure they don't end up just in trash heaps somewhere? Having said that, they're a lot easier to disassemble than solar panels, which are very hard to disassemble and they have a number of heavy metals, but they're still an issue. So we can do more in that area. I don't think that we should ever say, hey, we're we're using more sustainable energy than anyone else, so therefore we shouldn't improve. Every industry on the planet should look to improve. And then in terms of the future, what I get excited about is the opportunity to do more uh, methane mitigation because that's, as I say, going to be that strongest lever to reduce climate change over the next 24 years, 25 years. I see that in the next four years, if we do more methane mitigation, the entire Bitcoin network can in fact become greenhouse negative. So in other words, the network will be offsetting more emissions, not through purchasing carbon credits, but for actual real physical reduction of emissions will be reducing more emissions than it creates. We can hit that point within four years. And what I get excited about is the Bitcoin network doesn't have to stop there. It can just keep on going. And it can be a shining light or an example to other companies or other industries rather about what's possible. So that excites me. So let's watch the space. Let's keep on tracking emissions let's not be too quick to prejudge let's look at things deeply let's take deeper looks at the counterintuitive truth um, and let's not assume because there might be one or two bad agents that it should malign a whole industry and let's take the time to take a look at something which as i say um, has a number of really strong climate fighting climate change fighting advantages some of which are already been realized and some of which are potentials for the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, awesome message. Um, where can listeners go to find, uh, to follow your work? Twitter is the best place. So at DS Batten is my Twitter handle. And 
if people are interested in finding out more about our methane mitigation climate tech fund, it's ch4capital.com. And they can send us a message there. Also, uh, really encourage our listeners to check out uh, your website, batcoins.com, B-A-T-C-O-I-N-Z.com. Some of your essays there, like the one I mentioned, um, really. uh... Yeah, if you want to dive into the weeds, that's a place to do it. (laughs) Well, I mean, you say that. That's where all the chat. You say that, but I found at least uh, least the the ones I read very beginner-friendly at the same time. Yeah, there's some nice pretty charts there, uh, which give you a view there, and the the data's all been open source, so anyone's welcome to interrogate the data if they feel so inclined. But as you say, there's also just some simple articles there, which are giving people an overview of what Bitcoin is and how it's used, both for environmental good, but also for social good around the world. Absolutely. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Brad. Been a pleasure. All right, how was that? Pretty mind-blowing stuff. I love the fact that Daniel started as an environmentalist and came to Bitcoin through the course of his work rather than starting from Bitcoin and then trying to justify it. I also love that the things he talked about don't depend on convincing people to care more about the environment or go beyond their own self-interest, because in this case, the profitable thing, mining Bitcoin, also happens to promote renewable energy and mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. To be honest, it's the first thing in a long time that's made me actually hopeful about our environmental future. It seems like we've been trying the same things for decades without success because they depend on people radically changing their behavior or government incentives that just result in a lot of inefficiencies and even outright contradictions like having to use more fossil fuels to be able to use more renewables like we saw in Germany last year or in Japan after the 2011 earthquake. One thing I wanted to mention was that another common question is, why doesn't Bitcoin follow Ethereum in changing its model to one that doesn't depend on energy usage? There are a few answers to this question, but as we heard in this conversation, a big one is that Bitcoin wouldn't have these environmental benefits if it didn't consume energy in such a flexible way. We'll cover other reasons and other aspects of Bitcoin in future episodes. I'm going to do my best to keep flipping the script on what you may have thought about Bitcoin. So please follow this podcast if you'd like to hear more. And if you'd give it a rating or review, that would really help me out and help others find this information. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you again soon. GM Radio.